Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Jeremiah 18, verse 1, it says, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house. There I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. So the Lord here is giving Jeremiah a visual uh, lesson, you know, a word picture. Sometimes, sometimes that's the best way to, to, to get a, a message across to someone is giving them a, a visual picture. Uh, some people, maybe some of you are visual learners and, you know, it just helps to have a picture. Well, well the Lord is giving Jeremiah a word picture here by sending him to the potter's house. Now, the potter and the clay. Um, Isaiah had spoke about it when we were going through Isaiah. We looked at that. Um, here, Jeremiah is uh, speaking about the potter and the clay, and the Apostle Paul as well. In the New Testament, um, they all use the lesson of the potter to convey spiritual truths to God's people. And, you know, there's three images. You know, if you can imagine Jeremiah going to this house, there's three things that are going to uh, you know, come to his attention. First of all, there's the potter himself. Then there's the potter's wheel. And finally, the clay that is on the wheel. And the potter, of course, is a representation, is a picture of God taking the clay, you know, uh, and he's, he's, con- he's molding it and making it into a vessel for his use. And the potter's wheel has a symbolism too. It's really, it represents the circumstances of life, always changing and always moving. It's one thing, uh, you know, life is constantly changing. Life is changing. And then finally, the clay, and that would be you and I, the people. And so the first thing that Jeremiah sees there is the potter, a picture of God. And, and what we see in the potter, first of all, is his sovereignty over the clay, right? I mean, the potter's the guy, you know, he, he's the one that has the idea in mind. He's the one that's molding and shaping the clay. So he's sovereign over the clay. In fact, Paul and Romans will deal very, very much on that aspect of the potter and the clay illustration. But the point is, is that God doesn't have to answer to you and I. And just as it would be absurd for a clay pot to, to complain, you know, hey, why are you making me the way I am? Why'd you put my handle over here? And why, why are you doing this? You know, just as it would be absurd for a clay pot to complain to the potter, so it is in reality absurd for you and I to complain to God. God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you putting me in this situation? It's just as absurd. The potter here has a vision and a play, uh, excuse me, and a plan for that lump of clay. He has a use for the clay pot, and he's molding it and designing it with that use in mind. And if you think about the potter, you know, I don't know if you've ever made pottery. I, you know, I made. I grew up in the '60s. Okay, so we made ashtrays in school. So you know, that was the coolest thing. Bring my dad home an ashtray. That's really not cool anymore, I guess. So you kids probably don't make ashtrays for your parents, but whatever you make, I don't know if you've ever done pottery. I never did it on a wheel, but you can imagine 
a spinning piece of clay on the wheel, the potter has got to pay attention to the clay, right? I mean, it's he, he's focused on that clay. Um, he's using his hands. He's, you know, he's, he's just, he's intent on the piece of clay. You know, he's keenly aware, he's interested, and he's involved in shaping the clay, the lump of clay. He never takes his hands or his eyes off the clay. And in reality, that's how God looks at you and I, as he's molding and shaping you and I. He never takes his eyes off of you. He never takes his hand off of you as well. Sometimes you wonder, you know, it's like, God, are, are you watching? Do you know what's going on? Do you see what's happening in my life? And, and he's the potter. Yes, he does know what's going on. He does see. And his hands has been on all along. You see, God has a plan for your and my life. And to that end, he is aware, he's interested, and he's involved in your and my lives. So that's the first thing Jeremiah sees as the potter. Then he looks probably down at what he's doing, and he sees the potter's wheel. And, of course, I mentioned earlier, that's a picture of life's circumstances. And just as the potter uses the wheel to start shaping and molding the clay on it, God uses the circumstances of life to mold and to shape you and I, and together with his hands, he shapes and molds you according to his purpose and according to his plan. And if you think about it, the wheel is controlled by the potter. When it starts turning, the speed of the wheel, and when it stops turning, when he's finished with the clay, that's all in the control of the potter. And just as the clay has no control over the wheel, in reality, neither do you and I have control over the circumstances in our life. Now, I will say that we have control over how we respond to those circumstances. But in reality, we don't have control over the circumstances. Proverbs 16.9 says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. James talked about it. In fact, we're in, we're in James on Wednesday nights. And in chapter 4, James says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you don't know what will happen tomorrow. You know, we may think we have control over our destinies, but in, in, you know, God has control over those circumstances in our lives. And then finally, there's the kick, the clay that Jeremiah would have looked at, representing you and I. And in this story, of course, it's representing Judah, the nation of Judah. You know, in the natural state, that clay is basically, it's just a shapeless lump of mud. Now, if you're a guy, you probably think, no, I'm not a mud, we're a rock. You know, <laughs> the other day uh, we were in the bedroom and... Uh, I was standing by the mirror, and I was like, yeah, I still got it, you know. And Teresa's like, you guys are all alike, you know. But anyways, it's a guy thing. You'd have to, anyway. We still think we've got it. (laughs) But, you know, the potter looks at a useless lump of clay, and he sees a vision. Just like an artist looking at a blank canvas, you know, he goes, he's got a vision of what he wants to paint on that canvas, God takes a look at your and my life. And without Christ, of course, there's really no purpose. There's no shape. There's no form. We're just there. And God sees what he wants to do, what he wants to accomplish in our lives. The Bible says 
We are his handiwork. And so he starts taking your life and the circumstances. And, you know, we all have unique circumstances. We all have unique personalities. We have varying gifts and talents. But God takes each one of those things and he designs and he orchestrates them in order to produce something useful for his purpose, a useful vessel for his, for his plan. In the hands of the potter, of course, your and my life has purpose in meaning. I'm reminded of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 4, when he's in, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 7, where he said, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. If you have the Spirit of God dwelling inside you, if you're a born-again believer, you have the Spirit dwelling inside you, you have that treasure. And we're just earthen vessels. We're just clay pots. And yet we have a treasure. We have God's Spirit dwelling inside of us. And so here, Jeremiah is watching the potter working on the clay at the wheel. And, And as Jeremiah is watching, he notices that the clay was marred in the hands of the potter. And of course, this happens when there's a hard lump in the clay or, or when it hardens prematurely. It no longer yields to the touch of the, of the potter. It, it, it can't be shaped anymore. It resists and it stiffens in his hand. And so here when the potter discovers the mar, he remakes it, he remolds it into another shape. I find that's interesting because just as the potter doesn't give up on the marred clay, you know, so God doesn't give up on you and I, because we're marred. We're marred by sin. In addition to being sovereign, God's also gracious and merciful towards us. You know, He takes marred vessels, and He reshapes, and He transforms them. And if you look through the Bible, man, there's all kinds of examples in the Bible. Adam and Eve, very first example, they became marred by sin. God had an original plan and a purpose for Adam and Eve, and they sinned. They disobeyed God. But God didn't give up on them. God had a plan and a purpose, and so He continued to work in their lives. Later on in the Bible, we read how the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Man, that speaks grace to me. Because how many times have I needed the Lord to speak again to me a second time? Or, Lord, you know, fill me again and, and use me again. And, and, and here, you know, Jonah was marred by disobedience, and yet the Lord didn't give up on Jonah. When Simon Peter meets Jesus for the first time, he's out fishing, you know the story, catches all those fish, and he's just blown away, and he falls down on his knees in front of Jesus saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. And Jesus took that marred fisherman, and he transformed him into a vessel of of glory, a sanctified fisher of men. And you see, Jesus wants to take your life and my life, and it's marred, But he wants to transform it into a life of purpose and usefulness for him if we submit to the potter. And so, verse 5 in Jeremiah 18, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. 
And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plan it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. Just as the potter, of course, can remake the marred clay, so God is telling His people here who are marred in rebellion and sin that if they'll turn and they'll repent, He'll relent to the disaster He is about to bring on them. Now that raises kind of an interesting question. Does that suggest that you and I have a free will? You know, there's people at all different sides of the Christian spectrum of Christianity that, that have wrestled with that, you know, the sovereignty of God versus the free will of man. And, and uh, you know, you look in Romans chapter 9, and, and I'm just going to read a few verses from Romans chapter 9, verse 14. Paul writes this, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles? That raises a major theological question. You know, do, are some people just created and destined for hell? And are others just, you know, created and destined for heaven, predestined for heaven? You know, if Romans, and this is, I'm getting into my own personal opinion, but if Romans was the only passage of Scripture dealing with the potter and the clay, I'd have to say, yeah. I mean, you, you, you can't argue with what Paul says here. But it's not the only passage of Scripture. You know, if you also look down here where Jesus, or excuse me, where Paul says, you know, what if? What if God wanted to do this? I always think back to when Peter and John, after Jesus' resurrection, before his ascension to heaven, and Jesus was telling Peter and John, you know, what were, was tell, telling Peter what was going to happen to him. You know, they were going to lead you about, you know, in a way that you didn't want to go and stuff. And, and Peter, at one point, he's kind of, you know, he's, if you read the history between the two guys, it seems like there's kind of this envious or this competition between the two. And Peter goes, well, what about that guy? And he's pointing back to John. And Jesus says, what if he stays until I, what if he remains alive until I return? And, and he says, but you follow me. And later on, John in his commentary, you know, he commentates on his own passage of Scripture. He says, you know, from that day on, the people thought that John was going to live until Jesus returned. But he says, but Jesus only said, what if? And so when I always hear that, what if, I always think, well, maybe Paul's kind of doing the same thing. What if God wanted to do that? He has the power to do it if he wanted to. Again, that's my 
personal opinion. Now, Paul undeniably addresses God's righteous sovereignty. and you, That's undeniable in Scripture. But then you have a passage like this in Jeremiah where God says he's planning disaster for them, and yet if they'll turn from their wickedness, he'll relent of it. Not only that, Paul later on in 2 Timothy 2 writes this in verse 20, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. But then he says this, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Now, again, this is not thus saith the Lord, this is thus saith Don, so you can take it with maybe $2.49 and buy a small Starbucks coffee with that. But I personally believe God's sovereignty and man's free will are both supported in Scripture's. I honestly do. I think, I think they're both scripturally supported. However, how exactly they work together, I, I, it's a mystery. It's a mystery to me. I don't know. Maybe you know. I don't understand it fully. I don't think we will ever fully comprehend it on this side of eternity. And people have wrestled with this issue down through the ages. There's a lot of intelligent people on both sides of the argument. But when I look at scriptures and I look at these scriptures, I say, you know, I see free will. And I also see God's sovereignty, and somehow, they, in my opinion, they work together. Again, my opinion. Verse 11, continuing in Jeremiah 18. Now therefore speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now, everyone from his evil way, and make your ways and your doings good. Here, God in His mercy, He's giving them another opportunity. He keeps giving them over and over and over another opportunity to, to repent and to be refashioned by God for glory. But this is what they say, verse 12. And they said, that is hopeless. So we will walk according to our own plans and we will everyone obey the dictates of His evil heart. That's Israel's response to God's you know, wooing them and trying to get them to repent. Now, I got to ask you a question. Do you think God, or excuse me, do you think that the children of Israel, that the people of Judah, they they verbally said that verbatim? You know, they ver- verbally said, you know, it's hopeless. We're going to walk according to our own plans, and will everyone obey the dictates of our own evil heart? <laughs> I can probably say for almost surety that they didn't actually say that word for word. I'm going to follow the dictates of my own evil heart. Have you ever said that to yourselves? You know, you know I'm, I'm going to just sin. I'm just going to follow what my flesh tells me to do. We don't say that, do we? But you see, God not only hears their words, but he also sees their actions and he sees their hearts. And that is what's speaking to God. When they're, when they're saying basically it's hopeless, what are they doing? They're basically not trusting the potter. They're not believing God's words through Jeremiah the prophet disbelief. When they say, we will walk according to our own plans, basically what they're saying by their actions is, I know where I want to be down the road, and I'm going to live accordingly to how I want to do it. They're basically being independent from God. And when they say, we will obey the dictates of our own evil heart, they're basically saying by their actions, I'm going to decide and make decisions for my own life. And so they're in rebellion 
against God's authority. So it's their actions that are speaking these things. Verse 13, Therefore thus says the Lord, Ask now among the Gentiles, Who has heard such things? The virgin of Israel has done a very horrible thing. Will a man leave the snow water of Lebanon, which comes from the rock of the field, with the cold flowing waters? Uh, excuse me, will the cold flowing waters be forsaken for strange waters? Because my people have forgotten me. They have burned incense to worthless idols, and they have caused themselves to stumble in their ways from the ancient paths, to walk in pathways and not on a highway, to make their land desolate and a perpetual hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and shake his head. I will scatter them as with an east wind before the enemy. I will show them the back and not the face in the day of their calamity. First of all, the absurdity of their rejection. Verse 14, they're leaving the cold, fresh flowing water from the rock out in the field for unfamiliar water. It's interesting that he mentions water from the rock in the field. That jumped out at me when I was reading this. Because, you know, back when the children of Israel were going through the wilderness and, and they came to a place and they were they were at Marah and they were they were thirsty and they you know and there's a couple times where God says to Moses, you know, speak to the well first he tells Moses to strike the rock. And Moses struck the rock and the water came gushing out. You guys know the story. You've been to Sunday school. You probably know it. Um, and then later on, you know, another time happens and God says, uh, now speak to the rock. But instead, Moses gets angry and strikes the rock. And, of course, because of that, he sins by just not representing God and, you know, God's grace and mercy. And so he ends up not being allowed to go into the promised land. But both times the water came out of the rock. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, describes how the rock that the children of Israel received from their water. Uh, that, excuse me. Paul describes how the rock that the children of Israel received their water from in the wilderness and that followed them is none other than Jesus Christ. Fascinating thing that he says there. But you see a picture of Jesus in here, or I do anyways. The fresh living water from a rock. In John chapter 7, verse 37, we read on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so what God's saying, it's so absurd that they would, they would forsake the living water to go for strange water. But, you know, it's absurd when we do the same thing, right? If you've ever been backslidden, it's absurd that someone would walk knowingly away from what Christ has done and start walking back into sin, start going and following other things. And yet we do. It's absurd, though. Verse 15, forgetting God. How absurd it is that they would forget God, the sovereign potter, turning to worthless idols. And then leaving the ancient, time-proven marked highway and choosing to stumble down paths. I don't know if you've ever gone hiking or backpacking before. Have you ever been on a, a trail that's, you know, this, this marked trail and you're following it? And, and maybe, maybe not, I'm this way, but, you know, you see this trail and you go, wow, that looks like a shortcut. 
you know, and, and that look actually is a little more exciting to take than this boring trail, you know. I'm going to, so you head off on this trail and, you know, you, pretty soon you find out it's really maybe a, a goat, a mountain goat trail because only a mountain goat could fit on it, you know, and you're, you're getting to a place where you got to climb over, raw, you know, logs and you're, you know, maybe you can end up coming to the edge of a cliff and it's like, whoa, you know, I guess that was not the path to take. But that's the picture here. And how often do we do that, right? How often we go, you know, I think God's got this path, but I think I'm going to go down this. This looks a lot more exciting to me. And yet, when we wander from his will in our lives, we end up hitting all these obstacles. And sometimes there's a cliff there that you're in danger of falling over. What were the consequences of their rejection? Verse 16, their land would become desolate. First thing, their land does that mean just, you know, okay, my farmland's desolate? No, it, it's basically referring to where they dwelled, where they lived. Everything that they did, everything about their livelihood was tied up with that land. And it would be desolate. It would be dead. It would be unfruitful. And then passersby would be hissing in astonishment, shaking their head. Now, I can't give you a Hebrew definition of these words. I mean, I probably could, but I didn't look them up. But here's just a, a visual picture of what I think that verse is talking about. It's when somebody goes, you know, they just shake their head and you can't, you, there's just no words to describe. You're just like, can't believe it. I think that's the picture that's being pointed here. Verse 17, finally, they'd be scattered. They'd be left alone. Remember I said earlier in the beginning, the potter is just intently watching and molding the clay. But, you know, if the clay keeps resisting the will, you know, the will and, the, and, and resisting what the Lord or what the potter is trying to do, you know, he might just turn away from that pot that's spinning on the, on the wheel. And it would allow the pottery to distort and to dry up and to harden. And God says, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to remove my hand of protection from you. I'm going to turn away as your enemies start overtaking you. Because of your disobedience. Well, I don't know if you were a person in Judah during that time. Can you imagine getting that message? You know, you're the people of God. You know, the chosen people. And God says, hey, I'm going to turn my back on you while your enemies overtake you. They probably wouldn't be like, hey, Jeremiah, we want to invite you to our church to speak and share this. You know, we really want everybody to hear it. Nuh-uh. They didn't want to hear it, right? Verse 18 Then they said, Come and let us devise plans against Jeremiah. For the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. And come, let us attack him with the tongue, and let us not give heed to any of his words. Now, that sounds like, you know, I'm going to lash you with my tongue. You know, (laughs) that's... I'm weird, okay? I just... What does that mean? Attacking him with the tongue. Well, you know, Jeremiah and his message were rejected by the people. And so to attack him with the tongue meant that they were going to start speaking against him. They were going to start speaking just the opposite of what he was saying. They were going to start speaking about him. They were going to start slandering his character. And that's exactly what they did. And it starts with just speaking words against Jeremiah, spreading slander. But it progresses, as we get into further into Jeremiah, to the point where they actually want to kill him, where they want to take his life because they hate the message that he's bringing. They think he's a traitor and they hate him. 
So it's pretty serious what they're, how they're responding. And so Jeremiah, you know, I, I don't know if you're like me. I don't like to, I, I really don't like uh, confrontations. Something as a pastor, sometimes you have to confront. And it's like, it's my least favorite thing to do. I'm, I'm, I just hate it, really. I hate having to do it. Jeremiah here, undoubtedly, he heard what was going on. He heard their response. He saw their attitude towards him. You know what he does? He goes to the Lord in prayer. Best thing you can do when someone's attacking you is take it to the Lord in prayer. And he does. Verse 19. Give heed to me, O Lord, and listen to the voice of those who contend with me. Shall evil be repaid for good? For they have dug a pit for my life. Remember that I stood before you to speak good for them, to turn away your wrath from them? Therefore, deliver up their children to the famine and pour out their blood by the force of the sword. Let their wives become widows and bereaved of their children. Let their men be put to death, their young men be slain by the sword in battle. Let a cry be heard from their houses when you bring a troop suddenly upon them. For they have dug a pit to take me and hidden snares for my feet. Yet, Lord, you know all their counsel, which is against me to slay me. Provide no atonement for their iniquity, nor blot out their sin from your sight, but let them be overthrown before you. Deal thus with them in the time of your anger. That's a pretty severe prayer, right? Lord, just punish them and wipe them out and you know all the stuff that he's saying to them. Jeremiah starts his prayer with, Lord, remember now how I have been to them. Do you see how they are responding to me? And, and you could just see, you know, here's the potter who's watching Jeremiah's life because God cares about Jeremiah as well as he cares about the children of Judah. And, and God's shaping and molding Jeremiah also. And God knows exactly what's going on. He hears everything. He, he knows what's going on. He knows what the outcome is going to be. He's keenly aware and his hands have been involved all along. You know... To return good for good. In other words, someone does something good to you, so you do something good back to them. Or if someone does something evil to you, you know, the human nature, the tendency is to do something evil back to them, right? That's human nature. That's uh, our carnal human nature, and that's the highest that man in his nature can go morally. If you do good to me, I'll do good to you. If you do bad to me, I'm going to get you bad, and I'll probably do it even a little bit worse. You know, that's, that's human nature. To return good for evil, that's not human nature. To return good for evil is Christ-like, and we see that in God's agape love. We see that in Jesus Christ loving the unlovable. When you and I are filled with the Spirit of God, we can love with that agape love. In fact, without Him, you can't love with agape love. But to return evil for good, that's not human nature, certainly not Christ-like, it's demonic. And that's exactly what's happening. These people are, you know, they're tools of the devil in this case here. And it's evil from the pit of hell, and God will avenge it. And you might say, well, you know, Jeremiah's prayer sure doesn't sound like a very Christian prayer, you know, like, you know, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, or, you know, turning the other cheek, you know, is Jeremiah right in what he's doing? I think Jeremiah's heart and his actions and his words 
were good and right toward the people. Because you remember, there's several times now that God has told Jeremiah, Jeremiah, stop praying for him. I'm determined to punish him. Because God knows the hardness of their hearts. And Jeremiah wept. He was a weeping prophet. So Jeremiah's heart, he loved the people. He did not want to see what was going on. So why is he praying this way? You know, think about it. Jeremiah was basically just obeying God. In the very beginning, God called him to, to deliver this message. And Jeremiah's like, yeah, you know, I'm a too young of a guy. You, you need to pick someone else. So don't pick me, you know. And God says, no, I've, I've chosen you to do this. So Jeremiah was only doing what God had told him to do. The people were not just hating his message, but they were hating Jeremiah. And they weren't just hating the message in Jeremiah. They were also hating God. And Jeremiah here, he's not praying out of anger and rep, uh, excuse me, retribution. I think he's prophetically praying God's will. Because that is exactly what God said he would do. All those things that he's praying is exactly what God's already given him to tell the people of Judah and Jerusalem. So I think he's just praying there prophetically. And now God responds to Jeremiah's prayer in chapter 19. Thus says the Lord, Go and get a potter's earthen flask, and take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests, and go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is by the entry of the potsherd gate, and proclaim there the words that I will tell you, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring such a catastrophe on this place that whoever hears of it, his ears will tingle. The valley of the son of Hinnom. We talked about it back in chapter 7 of Jeremiah. It's the place just outside of Jerusalem where Molech was worshipped. Molech worship involved human sacrifice sacrificing babies on the altar to Molech. All kinds of abominable practices took place there in the valley of the son of Hinnom. In Jesus' day, that was Jerusalem's garbage dump. The garbage there was burned day and night in what was also known as Gehenna, the valley of the son of Hinnom. And Jesus, when he's talking and, he's, and, and, and speaking about hell, he likens hell to the eternal fires of hell, to the eternal or the day and night burning of the fires of, of Gehenna, the garbage dump there. And the potsherd gate. Now, some Bibles, and I don't know if you, this is the New King James, I don't know if you have a different version, but some Bibles say it's the dung gate. I've even read where they say it's the east gate or the sun gate, and there's, they've got all different reasons for it. Whatever it is, here it's called the potsherd gate, and apparently... That's where the potter's house and the potter's field were. Verse 4, he says, Because they have forsaken me and made this an alien place, because they have burned incense in it to other gods whom neither they, nor, uh, they, their fathers, nor the kings of Judah have known, and have filled this place with the blood of the innocents, they have also built the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal, which I commanded not to which I did not command or speak, nor did it even come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that this place should no more be called Tophet or the valley of the son of Hinnom, 
but the valley of slaughter. And I will make void the council of Judah and Jerusalem in this place. And I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hands of those who seek their lives. Their corpses I will give as meat for the birds of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth. I will make this city desolate and a hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and hiss because of all its plagues. And I will cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters. And everyone shall eat the flesh of his friend in the siege and in the desperation with which their enemies and those who seek their lives shall drive them to despair. This was literally fulfilled during the Babylonian siege. Verse 10. Then you shall break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you and say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Even so I will break this people in this city as one breaks a potter's vessel which cannot be made whole again, and they shall bury them in Tophet till there is no place to bury. Now if you think back to the beginning, to chapter 18 there, the potter you know, he's, he's working on that piece of clay and he finds a mar. You know, he finds a, a hard, dry spot on that, on that pottery and he doesn't cast it out. He works again and he molds and he shapes and, 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 and the pottery is made into another vessel. It's, it's reshaped. But here in chapter 19, the pottery is so stiff and it's so hardened, it no longer responds to the potter. And so... It's good for nothing. And so the potter is going to throw it out and it's going to be discarded as broken pottery. The potter's field, that was where the potter threw out all his, his pottery that was broken, that, was, that just wasn't good. You couldn't work with it anymore, so he tossed it out as refuse. And so the potter's field would be full of shards of potsherds of broken pottery. Verse 12, Thus I will do to this place, says the Lord, and to its inhabitants, and make this city like Tophet. And the houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah shall be defiled like the place of Tophet. The word Tophet, by the way, I, keep, I didn't really dig into it here, except it does mean, I think it means drumming. And apparently when they were offering their sacrifices, they would, they would beat drums, kind of like this, you know, a native chant-like thing type of thing, while they're burning the children so that the parents wouldn't hear the screams of the babies dying. That's, and so that's where that name came from, Tophet. Um, and the houses of Jerusalem, the houses of the kings of Judah, shall be defiled like the place of Tophet, because of all the houses on whose roofs they have burned incense to all the hosts of heaven, and poured out drink offerings to other gods. Then Jeremiah came from Tophet, where the Lord had sent him to prophesy, and he stood in the court of the Lord's house and said to all the people, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring on this city and on all her towns all the doom that I have pronounced against it, because they have stiffened their necks that they might not hear my words. They were like a potter's vessel which cannot be made whole again. They had stiffened their necks. You know, they had continued to refuse the Lord enough times to where they, get, they were hardened. And God, God knows their heart. God knows that they're not going to repent. So he says, this is going to happen. 
as a result of not responding to him. We have such a, a vivid illustration of the potter, the potter's wheel and the, and the clay. That potter's field, you know, where the dry and hardened marred beyond redemption, pottery was cast out. What a, what a vivid picture for you and I, though I'm sure you can, you know, draw illustrations from. But you know what? The picture doesn't end there. Because later on, when we get into Zechariah, in Zechariah chapter 11, there's this prophecy. It says, And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. This is what Zechariah prophesied. And what we find out later in the Gospels, that this is a prophecy about Judah, or excuse me, about Judas. Because Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And, you know, when, after he betrayed Jesus and Jesus was crucified, Judas felt remorse. And he went back to the high priests and the leaders and he said, you know, I, I've betrayed an innocent man. And they're like, what's that to us, man? You, you deal with it, basically, is what they told him. And so he threw the money down into the temple, and he went out and he hung himself. And the Jewish leaders, you know, in their self-righteousness, they're like, we can't take this blood money and put it into the temple treasury. What are we going to do with it? And so they went ahead and they bought the potter's field where they could bury strangers in. The place where marred and broken potsherds were discarded the place that Jesus used as a symbol of hell was in a real sense purchased with his blood. It just fascinates me when you look at those, all that tied together. Think about the symbolism. It all ties to Jesus' redemption of marred sinners. And what blows me away is Isaiah, Jeremiah, the gospel writers, Judas, the Jewish leaders, did they all conspire together to make this story? Hey, you know, let's do this because then it will really fit together. It'll look good and, you know, we'll make, it, we'll make it seem like it's a real true story. It blows me away when you read this. Can you imagine putting together a coherent story, like a novel or something, and you give it to different authors from different centuries, hundreds of years apart from each other? in some cases thousands of years apart from each other. You give them and you say, I want, I want a story written. You have different authors from different centuries, from different cities and towns, and in some cases with the Bible writers, different continents over thousands of years. And you say, I want, I want a, a central theme and I want, a, you know, I want a, a cohesive narration or narrative, excuse me. It just blows my mind when you think about that. And yet, that's what you and I are holding in our hands. The Bible. It's God's message to mankind. And it's got the common theme of Jesus' blood and redemption. All this stuff fits together. That, it, just, it just blows me away. To me, that strengthens my faith and believing that what I'm reading is true and it's, it's inspired God. It's the inspired Word of God. Secondly, think about your life right now. If you're a believer here this morning, you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, your life has meaning and it has purpose. And God is in control 
of your circumstances of life. He's sovereign, and his eyes and his hands are on you. And yeah, you might be in a place where things are a little uncomfortable. You may not understand why God is allowing that thing to happen in your life, but God does, and he has a plan and a purpose. And he's shaping and molding each one of us for his own use. He's got a a unique thing for you and I to do, and so he's shaping us for that. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ this morning, and maybe you're marred by sin this morning, man, he can, he can take your life and transform it. He can, he can take a marred vessel if you'll surrender to him this morning, and he can take it and he can remold it for glorious purposes.